Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last week, John Truitt explained why he believes the gifts of the Spirit are still available for Christians to experience. Today, Greg Dibel pulls on his own biblical research and personal experience to present an opposing case. What's fascinating about Dibel is that he believes in God's miraculous activity in the world today. However, he does not believe that speaking in tongues, also called glossolalia, is genuinely available anymore. Rather, based on his reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, he makes the case that the purpose for tongues ceased the moment Gentiles destroyed Jerusalem, its temple, its people, and dispersed them. This is part two in our Holy Spirit series, and next week we're going to put Truett and Dibel in conversation with each other. Let's see what you think. Here now is episode 376, Tongues Have Ceased, with Greg Dibel. All right, well, welcome Greg Dibel to Restitutio. I'm so glad to have you on the show today. I wonder if we could start by just hearing a little bit about you and yourself and, and your website and uh, what you're into these days. Thanks, uh, Sean. Great to be with you again. Uh, I really admire your, uh, your work. Uh, as I guess a lot of your listeners would know, uh, I am an ex-Churches of Christ pastor. I was uh, trained in their uh, Sydney campus, uh, the, what was then known as the Woolwich campus for Churches of Christ, graduated there, did about 15 years full-time pastoral work in a number of different churches, saw great blessings there. Also, at the same time, uh, I was uh, involved in a lot of uh, evangelistic uh, sort of uh, meetings, crusades, I, I think it's a bad word these days. Uh, I did a lot of, uh, you know, uh, traveling, certainly mainly within Australia, to do a lot of, uh, you know, evangelistic work. Uh, whilst I was doing that full-time pastoral work. Uh, after, I think as Jeff mentioned on, on uh, his board podcast with you, after uh, about seven years of uh, ministry in one of the churches in Victoria, uh, I was pretty well burnt out. I'd, I was spent, well, I mean, I had a wife and four kids traveling extensively, doing university studies, uh, running a, a very big church, senior pastor there. And so I needed a bit of time out. Uh, I thought, well, I can drive buses or taxis for a, a sabbatical, but um, why not do something that, uh, you know, is going to add another string to my bow and life experience? Uh, so I did that in the form of being an ambulance paramedic and uh, ended up doing that um, with a little bit of an interlude between times for another pastoral uh, ministry. Uh, I did that for, it turned out, uh, almost 30 years. Wow. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. So uh, be- between the pastoral and the, and the theological training and the real life experience uh, with all the blood and guts on the road, uh, I-, I feel like I've uh, seen a fair bit of humanity broken, battered, bleeding and bruised. And uh, I'm happy now to, to uh, be uh, a little bit um, more on the quiet side. So are you retired then from the ambulance work? Yes, I am. Yes. Okay. Uh, which is lovely. I-, I must admit, when I hear a siren go, I, I have no uh, longings or pinings to get back in that vehicle. Uh, and I think, good on you. You go for it, but I'm happy where I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very good. And of course, you're the author of uh, They Never Told Me This in Church. Yes. And uh, when, when did that book come out? Do you remember? Uh, April uh, 2006 was the first edition. Okay. 
which was also interesting enough, just prior to uh, me going over to the Atlanta Theological uh, uh, Conference. Uh, so it uh, coincided with that. And that's probably when we met. Yes, that's right. Yes, it probably was. And the second edition? The second edition? Uh, oh, now that came out, uh, I think, uh, about a year or two after that with some, I think, uh, some significant improvements to the point where I don't like the first edition much. I think it's a bit defective in a few areas. Yeah. Uh, the second edition, you know, uh, still has a few places where I would like to uh, tweak it a bit, but essentially I'm, I'm a lot happier with that. And are you working on a new book now or is that, uh, are, are you well, satisfied with what you've already put out? No, a lot of people keep saying, you know, a lot of my articles on the website, uh, you know, really are crying out for a hard copy. And I guess, um, you know, I'm open to that. Having seen, uh, you know, the challenges and knowing the challenges of that, that's, uh, you know, I've got to be absolutely convinced in my own heart before God, that's where we've got to go. Yeah. But yes, I, I ideally would like to, I think, uh, go for a few hard copies. And maybe the topic we're going to look at today could be one of a, a booklet in, uh, you know, such a, such a direction. Mm -hmm. And your website is thebiblejesus.com. Catchy name yes. there, as opposed to the traditional Jesus or the commonly understood <laughs> Jesus. This is thebiblejesus.com. Right. Yes. And uh, if, if I were to classify your, your website, I would say it's, a, uh, it's more of a literary website uh, because mm -hmm. it's just loaded with these articles. Do you even know how many articles you have on here? Yeah, no, I don't. bothered to count them all up? Uh, no, look, I think uh, each article probably, uh, if I'm honest, takes me uh, with everything else that I'm doing two to three weeks to post a new article. There's uh, probably now just about 100 or just over 100 of uh, such articles. But you're right, it's more of a literary style. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm quite aware that today's generation likes podcasts, uh, you know, two to three, five minute, you know, sort of catchy little, uh, you know, sort of videos. <laughs> and uh, I, I, need a, I need a technical team to help me to get into that. So if you're volunteering, Sean, I'm, uh, I'm all go. <laughs> I'm, I'm not volunteering, but if a listener does want to volunteer, uh, we'll, we'll be sure to give some info in the uh, show notes for this episode Fantastic. so they can get in touch. But uh, yeah, we're looking at uh, what would you say is an average number of pages for an article? Uh, many of them run about six pages of reading, okay. which is a small chapter of a book anyway. Mm -hmm. It's fair to say that most of my readership would be people who are you know, more mature, uh, I'm certainly not considering myself a communicator with today's teens or so much, although there are quite a number in, in the, the young adults group that do read my articles and uh, really appreciate them. Mm -hmm. But uh, I guess um, I've been looking for a particular niche. A lot of pastors, interestingly enough, a lot of pastors read my articles and uh, some of them uh, have asked permission if they can preach them. Well, good luck to them on that. <laughs> but uh, s some of them are fairly, you know, I guess involved uh, and not really I would considered, uh, you know, consider it to be a, more of a preaching style. A few of the articles do come from sermon series that I've done, particularly, for example, in New Zealand to uh, a church or two over there. Uh, mainly, mainly one church in Hamilton. They are more of you know an appealing style, I, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes, very good, very good. So today we're delving into the topic of the gifts of the Spirit, and yep. uh, so I, I wonder if you could begin by summarizing a little bit your own position. I see you have fourteen articles posted on the site here under mm -hmm. charismatic questions answered, and uh, yes. I don't think we can get, get to all of them. 
Uh, but uh, no, no. could you summarize a little bit uh, how you how you approach the subject and what your what your position is? Certainly, I hope it comes out of a deep experience from my own walk with the Lord, and uh, not just an academic sort of exercise. Uh, certainly, I think it reflects my own journey. From uh, I grew up uh, as a teen in the 60s and uh, early 70s, at which time, you will recall, the uh, charismatic movement was really uh, worldwide, uh, you know, in full swing. And so uh, it certainly came to our town, certainly came to our church, and certainly our pastor at the time uh, was very amenable to, uh, you know, the uh, charismatic uh, gifts and experience and the baptism of the Spirit, so-called, and all of that. So I did not grow up with any feelings of anti-charismata or uh, any hangovers. I came to it with a fresh, youthful sort of mind and approach. From a personal perspective, I I loved having uh, our Youth for Christ meetings at that time because we were able to mix with all of the other young people in the district and a lot of them were a lot of the young fine looking ladies from the charismatic churches <laughs> <laughs> so so that probably gave me even a, a greater desire to, to learn a bit more about it and before i should say this too sean before i went along to to theological college uh, um, and uh, with with some of my mates from the church then uh, the minister himself our pastor took us to another uh, church of christ uh, a very big one uh, down on, on the Gold Coast uh, here in Queensland. And he took us to some people who had experienced the so-called baptism of the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And uh, they prayed over us. I was certainly very open and I really d- was desiring to experience uh, the fullness of the Spirit as was being taught in that particular mm-hmm. manifestation. Uh, I went off to college. I didn't think a lot more about it apart from the fact that some of the churches I ministered into while I was a student were also... Uh, deeply divided over the question. But uh, again, my experience with anyone that I had met uh, who was, uh, you know, claiming, you know, to be involved in the charismatic movement, to my mind, were alive. They demonstrated a godliness, a zeal, uh, a love for the scriptures, a love and a personal relationship with Christ, which certainly I uh, have never, never lost, you know, that admiration nor desire in my own life. When I graduated, when I went to one of the churches, I I guess I was accosted and affronted by a charismatic pastor with a number of his congregation who who had heard and seen the many wonderful, amazing things that were happening in our church by way of conversions to Christ, to baptisms uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, changed lives. Uh, But they felt I was still lacking something. And so they came and visited me with the deliberate uh, desire to to get me to speak, you know, in other tongues uh, and to give the the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit as they did on the day of Pentecost. So the first time you mentioned that you were prayed over and they were trying to get you to to speak in tongues. What happened there? You you didn't really explain that. They they simply were praying that that you know I would receive and my other friends who were going to college with me would receive the full anointing and power and the you know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, if the evidence of you know that they had themselves had experienced speaking in other tongues, so called, uh, came my way or our way, then all well and good. 
But we weren't, I, I have to be honest, I was hoping for an experience. But deep down, I would really wanted more than anything else, the power of God in my life to do his work. Mm-hmm. And did you notice any difference at all? Oh, I certainly knew and, 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 and uh, was very well aware of God's hand upon my life. And the evidence to me that that was, was so was a power to witness for Christ, uh, a power to preach for, in his name, you know, with the evidence of conversions uh, and belief in the gospel of Christ following from people who were atheists, skeptics, unbelievers, you know, all the rest of it. So to me, uh, as, I, as I will go on, no doubt today, that to me was the primary evidence. And I believe that's the, the primary scriptural evidence that a person has been uh, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit. So you would say then that that first time where you were seeking the Spirit in your life, that that was a positive outcome for you. But mm. now you're talking about another time where people were more cajoling you and yes. trying to force you into something. So uh, to catch yeah. us up. What happened in that that okay. negative it's, context? Yes, now? yes. Well, I certainly felt felt uh, accosted and surrounded, uh, and and you know, by a, a, an agenda to bring me over into another group. Uh, as I say, we had a, a lot of stuff happening in our church as well. Now. What happened was this, this, this pastor said to me, you know, he, he outright asked me, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit uh, with the evidence of speaking in tongues like they did on the day of Pentecost? And I said, well, no, not exactly. You know, I haven't been. So he said, well, you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, I said, according to your definition, apparently not. But I said, you know, there's, that was just one aspect of what happened uh, with the initial filling of the Spirit on Christ's people at that time. So I asked him, you know, so you believe you've been baptized in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, as they were in the day of Pentecost? And he said, of course, you know, we have the evidence of the speaking in other tongues. So I asked him then, you know, did he recall at the time when he was so-called baptized in the Holy Spirit, uh, whether there was a mighty sound of a great rushing of, of the wind? And he, he admitted that he hadn't. So I said, well, you know, were there flaming tongues of fire sitting on each of your head and the others who were there with you? And he he couldn't remember that bit either. So I said, well, you haven't been baptized, uh, you know, according to the criterion on the day of Pentecost, you know. uh, But he said, yes, but I have the evidence in in the fact that I can speak in other tongues. So I said, it seemed to me that you're being a little bit selective. That particular experience from there on drove me back to the scriptures. What is the evidence? What was the key thing about the day of Pentecost that told the disciples, the apostles and the others there with them in the upper room, that they really had received the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the initial you know, fullness and filling? I would argue from the scriptures that uh, the evidence was their power to speak uh, the, the great works of God in, in known languages that were understood clearly without the need for interpretation on the day of Pentecost uh, and, and required also Peter's prophetic application of the phenomenon, uh, you know, when he stood up and said, you know, this, what you're seeing and hearing today is that uh, which Joel predicted. And the evidence followed was that there was great conviction of sin. There was a great mass turning to the Lord and to his gospel truth and a faith in Christ himself. And to me, that was the evidence that they had received the anointing, the baptism, the power, however you want to term it, uh, of the promised Pentecostal blessing. 
if you go through the rest of the book of the Acts, there are, uh, I believe, six other occasions when the apostles or, or, or those early Christians were said to have been filled full with the Holy Spirit and four other expressions where they were said to be full of the Holy Spirit. So uh, I think, if I'm correct, uh, ten times in all that expression occurs. And we can demonstrate today, I believe, very simply that on each occasion, the outward miraculous sort of attesting, uh, you know, signs that follow differed. But the one consistent and persistent evidence all the way through of the fullness of the Spirit upon them was the little word and, and they spoke the word of God with boldness and they testified to the risen Christ and multitudes or many were added to the church. So I think the consistent scriptural evidence that a man or a woman and the church is or are filled with the Holy Spirit is their spirit-filled boldness to simply, graciously, uh, positively testify to their knowledge of uh, you know, the gospel of Christ and, and, and a relationship with the living and exalted Christ uh, and how that applies to our lives today. I'm thankful for that pastor and for his, his people. Uh, they prayed over me and again, they encouraged me to, you know, utter some syllables and so on. And, uh, you know, I wasn't comfortable with that, but uh, I went along with it, uh, went away without it. They told me it would happen later. Uh, but as I searched the scriptures, I came to the conclusion that they were being very selective. If God would send me whatever experience, I was happy, but I wasn't after an experience per se. I was after the reality of the powerful anointing of God upon my life. Mm-hmm. Would you self-identify as a cessationist? No. So you would affirm then that miracles, um, healing, exorcism, even speaking in tongues and prophecy are available today? I would put the tongues in a little different category, which if you wish we can go into. I, I personally believe that the, the, the biblical gift of tongues has more than likely and primarily ceased today. Uh, But so far as the other gifts are concerned, the gifts of uh, in in various manifestations, uh, the other charismata, I believe, are still seen today in the body of Christ. Uh, Certainly the gift of prophecy, if if you by definition make that to mean the ability to proclaim the word of God with personal and public application in a current environment, that gift is still with us today. If you're asking and, and defining prophecy as new revelation to you know, be equal in authority with what we have in the scriptures, I would definitely argue that that kind of prophecy has ceased. Mm-hmm. I think the foundation has been laid, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and uh, is unrepeatable. But the prophetic gift by way of, of really preaching the word of God with a cutting power to people's hearts and lives, that still is available today. I believe uh, in his grace, God has given me that gift. So I, I would be arguing against it if I, if I, if I said it didn't, didn't continue. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, what about uh, prophecy in the sense of uh, receiving a message from God for a situation apart from preaching? Like, say, for example, uh, I'm thinking about like Agabus in the book of mm-hmm. Acts uh, predicted mm-hmm. that it uh, wasn't going to rain, mm-hmm. 
or that there would be famine, something along those lines. Do you see that as available today? Uh, on on rare occasions, I do. Yes, I mean okay. I remember clear when you asked that. I remember that you know the story of, for example, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, how he on a number of occasions in the middle of his public proclamations would stop, and uh, he pointed out. I remember one occasion to a particular young man who who uh, was convicted and converted basically on the spot because Spurgeon revealed the secrets of his own conduct and heart, which nobody else knew. He'd been swindling money from a business. Wow. And uh, and so on. So, you know, and, and that's happened to me, by the way, Sean, where I've been preaching. I remember one occasion um, after I'd finished preaching uh, and, you know, shaking hands as a good pastor does at the end of it uh, with everybody. Uh, and this this fellow was new to the church. And he, he said to me as we shook hands that you've been reading my personal mail. And I thought he was joking. Uh, I didn't know what he meant. I just said, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I'm glad you you know found, found the message applicable. Uh, now, the next week he came back. In a more earnest tone, he, he said to me, no, he said, you have been reading my personal mail. And I, again, took him, you know, right, <laughs> as right. speaking This generally. guy's joking but around. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, thought, I thought that was the case. But it wasn't until somebody else from the congregation came up to me and said he'd been talking to them and said, that man has been speaking to me personally from the pulpit about my own personal life, which, of which nobody else here knows, and it's just as though nobody else has been sitting there but me. Yes, to answer your question without going on, raving on, uh, you know, it, the answer is yes. It's happened in the New Testament. I mean, you know, as you know, the high priest gave a prophecy about the coming, uh, you know, crucifixion and, and death of Christ for the atonement of the people. And, and the scriptures clearly say he did not know what he was saying. He did not know he was prophesying. So it's even possible, I think, for some people to say things they don't even know. So yeah. yes, yes, I believe that is the, that is quite possible. So if I let, let me see if I can summarize where you're coming from in my own words, and you can affirm or deny or correct, however, sure. however you like. What I hear you saying is that you believe that God is a living God, that He Amen. is alive and at work in our world today, in many different ways, and He can work through people to do supernatural things, whether it's uh, reveal some sort of information or uh, heal someone of a physical condition or even cast out a demon, uh, that th these sorts of things are very much part of Christianity today, but that speaking in tongues in particular is something that has fulfilled its role within what, the time of the apostles or, or you know, in some of those early years? Yeah, I think that, that is a very good summation of my position. Uh, I personally have seen and seen people healed in response to the church following the, the uh, you know, instructions in the scriptures. Uh, I believe that the uh, commission to preach the gospel includes, again, an and. Uh, you know, we're very good, I think, as biblical Unitarians, uh, pointing out the first part of Jesus' commission, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But he also gave the commission and, and he added with it, and, you know, to heal the sick. And wherever the church has believed the word of Christ and followed the pastoral instructions which followed on, for example, in the book of James, uh, there have been evidences of mighty and miraculous healings that have been, that have been seen and which have been well documented. Uh, insofar as casting out of demons, I again personally have been involved in that, and we and I don't n normally talk about it, 
but uh, discernment of spirits is another gift, clearly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I personally have also been involved in that. So I guess I'm a bit, bit of a, an odd bod in that uh, I, I would put the gift of tongues aside. And if you wish, we can follow that a little line on. Uh, but primarily, yes, you're right. God is the living God. And we are to anticipate and to expect that he is going to back up his people. And with, when his word is preached, the Lord will work with us. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's an exciting mindset to have. I, I also believe that God is alive and at work and can do incredible things if we are aligned with him and mm. open and we have faith. I think faith is a real activator, but uh, it's not a guarantee. No. You know, and if you want to test that out, just believe really hard that you can walk on water and then go test it. (laughs) (laughs) And if you uh, if you fall through, then uh, faith isn't enough. I mean, obviously, you have the faith if you went all the way to walking on the water (laughs) to attempting it. Right. But, uh, you know, faith isn't enough. Uh, It also has to be God backing it up. But uh, I wonder if we could uh, pry into this. You wrote this one article. Let's see. What was it called? My Experience with Tongues. And I'm looking yep. at uh, page eight here, where you talk about this really interesting, although sort of like Hollywood-type experience, where there was somebody speaking in tongues, and a counselor said, uh, and this is uh, just quoting from it, the Spirit giving this tongue, you are commanded in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, do you confess that Jesus is Lord? Mm. And uh, then you said... If there are foul spirits that have been lurking behind the scenes in darkness, they will refuse to confess that Jesus Christ is risen Lord and Son of God Most High. Mm. Uh, And then you talk about how in this experience, this person said, no, I do not confess that. Jesus is accursed. Mm. And uh, you talk about some, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a demonic manifestation. Uh, could Could you share about that experience a little bit? I mean, that just seems absolutely incredible. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, you certainly picked out uh, and highlighted the most, uh, you know, I guess... <laughs> the juiciest. Aspect, the juiciest bit at the very end. Uh, with the, and that, of course, that article comes after a very painstaking exegetical approach to it. Mm-hmm. And I never like to start with experience. And the article goes on to say, well, you know, those who say, in spite of some of the exegetical reasons I, I've outlined in the articles previous as to why the, the, the sign gift of tongues, I believe, are no longer with us. I, I almost hesitated to write that because once you're written, you know, it's there. It's in, out there. In, yeah. It's out there set in stone. Uh, but yes, uh, I, I personally have been uh, a witness to uh, quite a number of occasions when uh, Christians, in fact, sometimes non-Christians have uh, given the evidence uh, of, a, a, you know, a glossolalia. And uh, it's proven to be demonic. Uh, It's frightening. It's confrontational when you meet the spirit world face to face, uh, manifesting in front of you. Uh, You know, I often read in the scriptures about, you know, how when Jesus, for example, you know, would cast out a demon, the person would be frothing, convulsing, uh, you know, loud shouting and all that sort of thing. Uh, But yes, I, I have, I cannot deny what I've seen from the experiential side you know, some tongues are demonically inspired. And oftentimes they lurk there because the person themselves uh, has not, you know, truly repented uh, of past involvement in the occult. 
particularly that's that's a real area for demonic activity mm-hmm. or if persons have persisted and persisted and persisted and will not take no for an answer uh, that they they demand that god gives them the evidence uh, of the baptism in the spirit with speaking to other tongues then i think that is a dangerous place to be rather than seeking an experience we should be seeking you know a relationship with god so and of course the objection to that which my charismatic friends and I, and I want to say up front too Sean that I have a lot of very close very godly uh, charismatic christian friends that I fellowship with I love and uh, you know I consider them to be born again you know all that so I'm not t- deliberately trying to be controversial in all of this not so much seek an experience but but as I say, seek, seek the, 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 the key to the whole thing is I want to be a man of God. I want to be a woman of God. I, I want to walk today so that my life is impactful for the kingdom in a relevant and, and uh, you know, incontrovertible way. So, yeah, so I don't know if I've fully answered your question. I'm a bit hesitant, uh, but yes, <laughs> yes, yes uh, that is true. I can, I can say from experience, I have personally been involved with people who genuinely thought they were worshipping God praying in other languages so so all the tongues of angels which we can talk about uh, but who ended up becoming convinced that the tongue within them when they heard these and felt these demons manifest becoming absolutely convinced that, that uh, you know their experience was from the pit of hell itself and not from mm-hmm. heaven I was really intrigued in that article by how you worked in first Corinthians 12 uh, verse 3 where it says therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, mm. and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And uh, using that as you know a, a litmus test mm. to ferret out, you know, is this is this genuine or not? And mm. uh, you know, I, I had never heard that before. Obviously, we all have mm. our own experiences, and I yeah. I could share with yeah. you some of my experiences. You're the one being interviewed here, so, <laughs> so sorry if I. Uh, no, that's cool. Uh, you know, brought yeah. that out, and it was uh, a yeah. little uncomfortable. But uh, you know, I think no, no, it no, is no. important not, for us uncom- to hear. Yeah, yeah, it's not uncomfortable for me, but I understand that it can make a lot of people nervous and unsure, yeah. and, and I don't, I don't want to upset anyone's faith at all. Yeah. Uh, but we must ultimately, and uh, you know, my articles bring this out in the last article on, uh, I think it was called testing one two nine one two nine. Yes, <laughs> uh, and the, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate, uh, you know, criterion that Paul concludes his correction of the, uh, you know, the false practices of the charismata in in the Corinth was that uh, if anyone thinks they're spiritual then let them attend to what I've written and what I'm saying. And if they do listen to me, then they are spiritual. And if they don't, then uh, they are to be rejected, right. uh, which is quite, quite clear. Hmm. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's where I wanted to go next <laughs> was to that article uh, where you say testing 129, testing, testing 129. And um, at the end of that article, it seems like I find the best stuff at the end uh, of your, <laughs> you, you take a while to sort of build to it, and uh, I, yeah, I just jumped yeah. to the end here. But uh, mm. you've got this list of nine criteria yep. uh, by which you can judge if speaking in tongues is being done in a legitimate or biblical manner. And oh. I wonder if you could just work through those with us and explain your perspective on 
on these nine criteria? Certainly. And now this is going to really take us a long time to do this, but as briefly as I can. Yeah, the short the version. First, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The short, the short version is that in order to justify today's, you know, uh, speaking in tongues, so-called, uh, there has to be a hiatus between what we read in the book of Acts and what we, we think we read in the book of, of, of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and the, the charismatic would argue, who, who, who claims that speaking in tongues is legitimate, that the tongues they are speaking uh, are different to what we read in the book of Acts. Now, I, I, I fail to see that there is a hiatus between the two with the caviar, or the caveat, I should say, not caviar, the caveat, <laughs> <laughs> with the caveat that uh, Corinth was a different situation and it does appear that there were some ecstatic utterances which didn't quite fit the Pentecostal criterion. And a lot of Bible you know, commentary would, would, would agree that there is a difference between the, the tongues in Corinth and those that we read about in the book of Acts. But there's no doubt about it, and no one, no one, I think, can disagree exegetically that the tongues in the book of Acts, on the three, three occasions that languages are mentioned, they are all known earth languages. The claim or the appeal is made in the book of uh, Corinthians that today's experience are not really those, those tongues from Acts, those languages. I prefer the word languages, which is, which is the lexic, lexical you know, definition. The languages in Corinth it is claimed that they are the languages of men and of angels. And so agreeing, therefore, that the languages that are spoken today you know, in the huge circle of our charismatic friends around the world don't meet the, the, the Pentecostal and the, the Book of Acts criterion, uh, in actual fact, heavenly tongues or, or languages of angels. Now, again, I think that is, a, that is an argument based on very poor biblical exegesis. Paul is... Um, uh, speaking there hypothetically, when he does mention his own experience, uh, when he heard uh, it would appear angels in heaven, he comes back and he says, well, it's not lawful for me to utter those words, uh, even if it was possible. He says it's not permitted for me to, to give that, you know, those, those uh, languages. So I, I would argue that it's impossible and God has not given for men to speak the languages of angels. If indeed we know they do speak in languages, we're not particularly told that they do or don't. That's all in the realm of speculation. Let me just read that text because that is an important text for yeah, this discussion. Yeah. It's 1 Corinthians yeah. 13.1 where Paul says, yeah. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, mm. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And mm. uh, the standard, I guess, pro-speaking-in-tongues uh, interpretation of this would be something mm. like, well, look, speaking in tongues, according to this verse, is either in the languages of people or of angels. And what you're saying is, well, hold on, don't build a doctrine on that here, because first of all, it's a hypothetical. Mm. You know, the point isn't about tongues, really, it's about love. And mm. uh, secondly, when Paul did have this heavenly vision, uh, I forget what chapter that is. Uh, is, is that 2 Corinthians, Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 12? Yeah, 2 Corinthians yeah. 12. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. When he had that experience, he says he got caught up to the third heaven, and yep. so on, that uh, he heard these words that were unutterable. Yes. Um, and uh, so you're, what, what you're doing is you're linking that with 1 Corinthians 13, saying, 
well, whatever that heavenly language or angelic language is, it's not utterable or whether or not physically or per, giving permission to utter it. I guess that could be a question. But um, so that yeah, if I understand you correctly, that's what you're what you're saying on that one. Well, let's let's in 1 Corinthians 13, this is the, the first reference in the whole of the scriptures and the only reference where you are, where we read about a hypothetical speaking in the tongues of men and of angels. Now you, you use the word or tongues of men or angels. Paul talks about, no, he says, and yeah, you're right. And yes, that's right. So he is saying, look, uh, the Corinthians of course were enamored and being puffed up by their ability. And Paul is saying, look, even if I had the capacity to speak in, in the languages of men and he, he goes beyond that and of angels, uh, but if I wasn't controlled by love, uh, then then I've just I, I, it amounts to zero. Uh, I've become a clanging uh, gong and a tinkling timbal. So to build a whole experience and doctrine on a hypothetical, when Paul includes a total experience of languages of men and of angels, is is rather to me problematic. So to build a doctrine on the fact that my experience is a language from heaven, I think is is dubious at the very, very least. Okay. And that that would be one of your nine, right? That was one of the nine, yes. Yeah, that you, that you cannot claim angelic language. This has to be some human language. Yes, well, I mean, every in time... Use, I, well, you, you say in yes. use from the world of men. So something yes. that is currently... In, yes. It wouldn't be like some ancient Akkadian or something. Well, I mean, it may, it may well be, but not too many people speak Akkadian. It's, <laughs> right. it's, 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 it's died out. I, right. I would take it as being in use currently. Right, you know? okay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, and, and, and again, the big argument here is, well, I'm uttering mysteries in the spirit. As Paul says, he speaks in a language given to him, is speaking mysteries in the spirit. And as you, if you read my articles there, I, I don't believe uh, that again is to be taken the way it generally is, because it's actually a rebuke given for an abuse in the context of people who were hijacking the uh, the meetings at the time, and not you know exercising their gifts uh, by you know in the spirit of love and of control. Uh, well, that was so, certainly the case in. Corinth. Yes, there was a lot yes. of shenanigans, That's and right. uh, you know, uh, s- sad to say, but we we won't have time to go through all the work that you've done on this. Mm. Uh, we will we will just have to summarize a little bit here, and uh, trust the listeners who are interested to really delve in deeper because mm. you know you, you do have uh, quite extensive thoughts on all of the pertinent scriptures in on mm. the website. Uh, but mm-hmm. I wonder if you could you could press on with the others in the list here. Certainly, in the context of Corinth, the tongues spoken uh, must be by no more than two or three uh, in any one gathering. He says at most three. Okay, so that you don't get a con- whole congregation, which I think perhaps was happening in Corinth. Paul is forbidding that. He is saying they must be two or three at most who do this, and it must be. Another test with interpretation so that the whole congregation can benefit. And another part of the whole thing is that it must be in order. So there's not to be together, there's to be one after the other. Consequently, 
or chronologically. Number one gets up. Now, if someone else has a revelation over here, the first one's to sit down and the second one is, is given permission to speak. So that's another test that Paul clearly lays out here for the biblical exercise of tongues, certainly within a, within a congregational context. I've omitted the big one, which we haven't we haven't got time to cover, but I'm happy to do if you want to. Uh, and sure. that is my 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 understanding that the, the gift of tongues was a sign gift for a particular day, a particular generation, and a particular reason. Now we haven't gone into any of that today. And Paul very clearly in his in 1 Corinthians 14 mentions that tongues are for a sign. Now, most of my charismatic friends will tell me that the, the sign is that I have received the, the Spirit or I've been baptised in the Spirit. I'm now filled with the Holy Spirit. For some extremists, it even is a sign that I'm now saved. Leaving that last bit aside, to the charismatic, the sign of, of speaking in tongues is that I have received and am now filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul says, yes, some tongues are for a sign. But he says they're not a sign to the believer. They're a sign to the unbeliever. Mm -hmm. It's very clear in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20 and following, and particularly verse 22, where he says tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe. The justification for my dear charismatic friends is, I believe, goes out the window there. He says not only just to unbelievers, but he says it's a sign to a particular class of unbelievers and that is the ones who are learned in the law. For he goes on to say, it's written in the law, this people. To this people, I will speak in stammering lips and other tongues and so on. So Paul clearly puts the gift of tongues in a category of its own as a sign gift for a particular day and purpose to unbelieving Israel, those Jews who knew the law and the prophecies. Now, the prophecies particularly go all the way back to, I think, Deuteronomy 28 from memory uh, and Jeremiah 5.15, where the prophets say that if, if Israel, and certainly in Isaiah 28, where he takes a direct quote from, uh, if, if Israel persists and does not listen to my message and my, through my prophets, then I'm going to judge them. And the judgment will be unbelievers, uh, in other words, pagans, Gentiles, invading your land, and you will hear these invaders speaking in their guttural tongues as a sign of my judgment upon you. Mm. So Paul appeals to this. And again, I've just, we've, we've skimmed over that. Yeah. But uh, Paul appeals to this uh, sign of tongues being a sign of judgment. And I think that, uh, and, if, and again, if you go back to the history of the church of Corinth in Acts 18, I think, uh, Paul was there for 18 months. He, he head-butted the Jews and the Jews really, tried to eliminate him and his message very, very, you know, violently, really. The tongues in Corinth, uh, as a sign gift to these unbelieving Jews, was a very potent sign that God's judgment, his sword of judgment, was imminently hanging over their heads. It's interesting to me that, that Jesus also, in Luke, for example, I think it's Luke 21, where he talks about how Jerusalem will be surrounded by the Gentiles and, and the judgment will be upon Jerusalem. It's interesting to me that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stands up, he says, you men of Judea and of you dwellers in Jerusalem. And then he goes on and talks about the, 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 uh, what's happening in, in the signs there. So to me, tongues is a unique sign gift uh, given uh, by the, you know, in the days of the apostles 
which I believe Paul goes on in certainly back in 1 Corinthians 13 towards the end there to say that tongues will cease. Prophecy and, and knowledge, he says, which are in part, will uh, you know, cease uh, and be, be forced to stop. But he uses a different uh, Greek expression there for the tongues. They will simply cease in and of themselves. And I believe that the primary purpose for tongues ceased the moment the Gentiles through the Romans disbanded and destroyed and razed to the ground Jerusalem, its temple, its people, and dispersed them. So, so yeah, I, that's what so I was that, going to ask next. If that judgment yeah, you yeah. were talking about was yeah. that meted out in the seventies under the Roman yes. generals uh, Vespasian yeah. and Titus, yeah, yeah. So I would put the tongues in a slightly different category as a sign gift for a particular time and purpose, which essentially is no longer here. Now, does that mean that I I don't believe a genuine gift of language isn't given in the context of evangelism today? No. I do believe that on very rare occasions that does and has happened. I personally know people who've been missionaries in New Guinea who went up there with a bit of basic pidgin English uh, up into the highlands. The villagers came on the first day all over the place, hundreds of them. And uh, in their broken pidgin, they were asked, you know, why have you come? You know, if you don't tell us why you've come, get out. And uh, they began to speak in broken pidgin, uh, but miraculously, they began to speak in the native languages of these villages. And the Spirit of God came upon them, and uh, they had a marvellous work for years after with those villages. Now, to me, the significant thing is that that was a miracle of language in a particular context of evangelism for a particular reason, probably to save their lives, as it would turn out. But afterwards, the next day, they then had to spend laborious and painstaking years of investment in their culture and language to communicate the gospel fully and properly to them. Right. But they did it with a basis of many who, who had heard God's great gospel in their own tongue the first day. So to me, that classifies as a genuine test for genuine tongue speak or language. I prefer the word, as I say, the word language. The genuine yeah. lang- gift of language is miraculously given, unlearned previously. But the other, which is associated with the tongues of angels, heavenly tongues, for private edification, I think is ruled out by the context and by the teaching of, of both Corinthians 12 to 14. It's really a fascinating position you hold on this. Uh, I haven't, haven't come across it before because, in a sense, you do believe in speaking in tongues. <laughs> 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 you don't, and you do. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah, uh, I know. a matter yeah. of clarifying uh, what mm. we're talking about here. The... Uh, experience you just mentioned would certainly be a miraculous uh, situation where someone was able to speak a language that they had not studied. And then as you pointed out, after the fact, they had to then study the language because they didn't really know the language. It was a miracle that had happened in that that scenario. So uh, that's that's really a fascinating example of what we're talking about here. Yeah, Yeah, look, Sean, I've spent decades on this. And I know a lot of people do and have, you know, in, in seeking God through his word, in prayer, wanting the best. And I'm not saying I, I'm, the, I'm the ultimate authority. I, I'm still open to if there's something I haven't seen or I'm not. Yeah. I, I'm really open to being shown. But I, I, every time I bring it up, I, I, I have the deep inner witness of the spirit of God that what I'm saying makes exegetical and experiential sense. 
we haven't finished the other nine tests. Uh, <laughs> one of them, of course, is you know the the, the appeal by the charismatic uh, experience to uh, speaking in in the spirit in mysteries, and I think again Paul eliminates that possibility by saying that his experience is that is that he will speak in the spirit and with his understanding. Uh, he he puts the you know speaking to himself in his miraculously given tongues as, a, as an apostle in a category where he understands what he's saying. It's a bit hard to speak to yourself, not knowing what you're saying. Mm. Uh, so uh, nowhere in the scriptures do I find any prayers of anybody who's praying to God who does not fully understand what they want to say, what they're asking, and so on. So the mind, uh, which my charismatic friends want to eliminate in order to enter their experience, is, I believe, God's uh, sentinel to guaranteeing uh, that we walk in his light. God never asks us to eliminate or dispose of his highest gift to mankind, which is our minds. Guided by his spirit, guided by his truth, guided by his word, we are not to enter into any sort of mystical elimination uh, of our cognitive faculties. Uh, to do that is to invite the spirit world, the demonic world, to mm. enter our own spirits and to uh, invite deception. Uh, so that's, I think, a very critical test to me. Well, one last question just before yeah. concluding here. You yeah. mentioned in one of your articles tongues of a psychological nature. So you would say then that people that claim speaking in tongues today, that you know, you already covered the scenario where it's demonic, uh, but you wouldn't say all experiences no. of tongues are demonic. You no. would say that others are of a psychological nature. Uh, yes. Could you explain what, what you mean by that? Yes. Well, oftentimes, uh, you know, a person who begins the charismatic experience uh, of glossolalia does so under quite intense coaching. Uh, you know, open your mouth, let your inhibitions go, you know, start uttering some syllables and, uh, and uh, let your tongue flow, let it flow. Uh, and uh, sometimes this takes, you know, just a few minutes or up to many, many minutes or sometimes even hours or many, many meetings, you know, down the track. Uh, so there's a heavy psychological sort of expectation. A person, if they're taught that this must happen, they get, they get a very severe, a severe case of psychological guilt. And that, as you said before, they begin to question the, the genuineness of their own faith and their conversion even to Christ. And so uh, with all of those inhibitions now being coached out of them, psychological you know, forces take over. Now, we know this is the case because it's a, a, an observed psychological phenomena within other non-Christian groups. Even, you know, there are groups within Jewish, Islamic, Mormon groups, uh, even non-religious groups who have this phenomenon, this psychological phenomenon of being able to, you know, uh, speak in ecstatic utterances, glossolalia, however you want to term them. So in my experience, the very last of the, the categories I always look at is that, yes, I did find uh, a, quite a number of people that once, uh, uh, you know, they saw good Bible teaching, once they realized what had happened, they'd always had these internal little doubts about their experience. Once they, you know, decided it wasn't the, the sign or the evidence, uh, the experience either immediately dropped off like a you know converted you know ex-smoker or sometimes the, the the taste goes immediately 
Others fight it all their lives and the temptation to go back to the drink or the smokes or the drugs or whatever. And sometimes these people say, look, I know it's not a valid biblical experience, but, you know, the urge and, and the desire, if I wanted to, I could still continue it at will. So I would put that under, you know, a category of psychological inducement. Yes. In that case, it's not it's not spiritual. It's just something that anybody could do or maybe that some people could do. Yes. Of, yes. You know, from their own abilities. Yes. Yes, I believe so. Okay, well, that, thank you for uh, sharing with me. I know we only scratched the surface. Oh, I, I'm going to get off here, Sean, and <laughs> but, feel uh, like we didn't cover things anywhere near as fully nor yeah. exhaustively as I would have liked, yeah. but we've thrown a lot of fishing lines out there, and hopefully some people can uh, have the desire to follow through, further through. Yeah, yeah, very good. And uh, hopefully our next time together we can be in dialogue with John Truitt and yep. uh, have you two enter into some respectful conversation on the subject. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think that's really going to be fruitful. And I'm excited for that mm -hmm. because uh, it's so rare in Christianity today that people on different sides of an issue will mm -hmm. engage yeah. in a godly manner. Uh, and yeah. uh, I, I think you two are certainly capable of doing that. And I look forward to seeing how that, how that plays out. And I appreciate your time. Thank you, Sean. I look forward to it as well. Thanks for your time. Okay, we're going to end this interview here. If you have thoughts, questions, comments, concerns that you would like to express, please come on to restitutio.org and find episode 376, Tongues Have Ceased, with Greg Dibel, and offer your comments for his consideration and our, all of our consideration. would love to hear from you. Do you speak in tongues? Do you believe that all Christians should speak in tongues? Do you believe that only some Christians should speak in tongues. Do you believe that tongues have ceased? In fact, we had a recent Facebook poll in the Restitutio group. Thanks, Brandon Duke, for putting that out with the description. Should be an interesting four weeks. I want to put my cards on the table and stand ready to be persuaded. And then he put down three options, continuationism, open but cautious, cessationism. And uh, a number of people have voted on that already. Continuationism is overwhelmingly winning, even if you combine the cessationism and the open but cautious people together, continuationism is still beating them out. And then Jen Johnson added in, continuationism but speaking in tongues and prophesying future events cannot be done at will. God chooses who and when. And then someone going under the pseudonym Hartzion which is Hebrew for Mount Zion, if you didn't know, writes, glossolalia is self-delusion. So that actually is cessationism, I would think, uh, although maybe he's more in line with Greg Dibel, thinking that these other miraculous activities are available, but not glossolalia or speaking in tongues. Just in case you weren't clear on that, glossolalia is just the Greek way to say speaking in tongues from the Greek word glossa, which means tongue. So if you haven't yet, why not join the Restitutio Facebook group and put your vote down on the poll there. Also, this series is likely to be more than four weeks as I'm continuing to develop this and arrange with people ahead of time to do some more interviews. There are actually quite a few different positions on the subject. And obviously, I know where I stand, and I'm sure you know where you stand, but I think it's really helpful for us to gain an understanding of what the other positions are and also recognize that the people that hold 
differing positions on this or really any subject aren't crazy. They're not spiteful. They're not trying to, to get you by holding a different view. They just see it differently and they have the reasons why. And really, in the end, as restorationists, our goal is to line up those reasons against each other to see which one makes the most sense biblically, historically, experientially, and so on, so that we can shed falsehood as we move on this journey together and move closer to a first century understanding of Christianity. So stay tuned for next week where we'll hear Truett versus Diable in a discussion on the subject of have tongues cease or have they not. We're going to zero in on that. And then after that, I've got another couple of guests that I'm hoping to book and line up for your edification. So stay tuned for that. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.